good morning. Great to be here with everyone and praising our Lord. And I don't know if you could hear it, that last song sounded kind of like the, the, the marching orders and the army of God coming together. And uh, that was pretty, pretty wild. <coughs> Um, I want to invite you to open your uh, Bibles with me, and we are continuing in um, our study through 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're actually returning to the verses we started last week, verses 7 through 11. This is going to actually turn out to be a, a three-part uh, series through these verses as we continue today with part 2 of living in light of the end. And uh, we'll begin by first uh, reading our text and then after we can look at application. So let's begin there. And in verse 7, as this is the reading of God's living and infallible word, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's varied, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong the glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Um, in verses 7 through 11, um, Peter gives us three uh, very important um, aspects of how we are to be living in light of the last days. Um, last week, um, we looked at point number one and the incentive. And we looked at just the first half of verse seven. We'll call it 7a, which reads, the end of all things is at hand. And we spent all of our time last Sunday looking at just some of the New Testament canon and how it anticipates the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Luke 12, 35, be, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. We also read last week in 2 Peter 3, 3 that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But Peter later warned us, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So according to end times math, we're in day three. 
we're in day three. And if you know the Bible at all, a lot of things happened on day three. <laughs> Maybe it's all going to happen on the third day. And I remind you, beloved, there are no more prophecies that need to be fulfilled, that need to be. So Peter was able to say 2,000 years ago, the end of all things is at hand. And that word end in the Greek is, is important. It's the word telos. It doesn't mean the end of um, something chronological. He doesn't mean the, the termination of all things is at, at hand, but rather telos means the culmination or um, the consummation of all things is at hand. It's the idea of the conclusion of all things. The fulfillment of all things is near. It's at the door. It's at the door. So Peter is reminding them, and by us extension, that we are to live with anticipation of the nearness of the return of Jesus Christ. We would say it this way, that we are to live within expectancy. We're to live expectant that the Lord could return at any time. The Lord said in Luke 12, be dressed in readiness. He didn't say, I've got all these things i got to do. Why don't you wait until all those things are done? Then get ready. He said, be ready. He may return at any moment. Well, that brings us to our second point, and the, um, from the incentive to the instructions. And we find these listed in verses 7b through the first part of verse 11. As um, Peter gives us three ways that we're to live in light of the end drawing near. And in this section, um, we'll spend today on Peter gives us three really basic elements of Christian living. These are, these are so basic, but the more that I spend time in these couple of verses here, the more um, they continue to grow and teach deeper and deeper truths. Um, so the first one will be personal holiness. Number two, it'll talk about our mutual love for one another. And then number three will be our spiritual service. And um, that's going to be saved actually till next week because there's um, a full uh, Sunday worth of preaching on just that last one point. So we're going to attack today personal holiness and our mutual love. Holiness, love, and service are the three dimensions, Peter says, we're to focus on in the last days. The first, personal holiness, has to do with our relationship to God and his revealed word. Okay? The second, mutual love, has to do with our relationship to others. And then the third, spiritual service, expresses the responsibility that God has called us to in terms of ministry within the body of Christ. And this is a calling. Um, these are all actually commands. They're not suggestions. Um, he uses a military term here. These are orders. These are marching orders from our commander. And we are called to minister these gifts within the body as God believes these are incredibly important in terms of how the church is supposed to function and breathe and live and be a blessing to one another. This is God's gift to, to us. And um, this includes all of you. Everybody with the Spirit of God has been called with a unique and special gift and calling upon their life. So three headings under number two are instructions, holiness, love, and service. So let's start with our personal holiness. Notice in verse uh, 7b, how Peter begins the second half of the verse with the word therefore, or in other words, because, because the end of all things is at hand, therefore, B, 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So we got these two verbs here, self-controlled and sober-minded, that are connected to our prayers. So let's expound on those first. Our first verb, self-controlled, is sophoretno in the Greek, and it means to be of sound mind. Sound mind. It's the idea of, of really guarding your mind. Or fixing your mind, rather, on spiritual realities. We don't just let our mind go idle. Or we don't just let whatever come in and take up space in our mind. No, we need to be on guard of our mind, have a sound mind, be intentional with what our thinking is about. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Um, it also implies not to be swept away by undue emotion or by um, uncontrolled passion. These, these feelings and emotions that we get all called up on. It's actually used in Romans 12.3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sound judgment. The same idea, this, this sound thinking, sound judgment. So the Christian mind must be clearly fixed on um, spiritual realities, biblical truths, holy living. That's what we're fixing our mind on. While the sinful, self-indulgent mind will be demonically influenced. Um, by the world system in which we live in, and therefore is easily persuaded by the kingdom of darkness. And so what Peter is saying is, since the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded. But what does that really mean, like, practically? Well, it means to be, um, number one, spiritually sane. There seems to be an insanity going on even in the Christian world. Um, it's a mind that thinks about what God thinks, right? It meditates on God's word daily. Not once in a while, not when I get around to it. Intentional, purposeful study of the word of God. The Bible says, for as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Um, the instruction um, the Lord gave to Joshua, something I remember um, from when I was a youngin. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law, God said, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So it may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Going all the way back to the time of Joshua, God said, you must meditate on my word. In that great epistle to the Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When believers' minds are subject to Christ um, and his word, um, they will see matters from an eternal perspective, which is vital to our Christian holiness. Colossians 3, verse 16. The word of Christ do what? Dwell in you richly. Oops, I clicked on that. Let me do that. That's all I have to do is that. that one. <laughs> Dwell in you 
richly. Um, that's what his word does. Um, once you meditate on it, it dwells in you richly. And, uh, and when God's word dwells in you richly, um, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And, and beloved, if we are to truly desire to um, walk in holiness, then we must take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Um, we have to be intentional about what we're allowing into our, our minds. Um, is it worldly wisdom or is it godly wisdom? We should be asking this um, daily, all the time, what we're putting in. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says, uh, we demolish arguments. Demolish them. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Paul writing to Titus also reminds us that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So, beloved, uh, how are you to possess this kind of self-control, you ask? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Take every thought captive. Make it obedient to Christ. You deny all ungodliness, all worldly desires, and live instead sensibly, righteously, godly lives. And the Bible says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The um, great characteristic of a spiritually sane mind is that it sees things in their proper proportions. It sees things in their proper priorities. It sees things in their proper perspectives. It sees what things are important. It sees what things are not important. Too many times we get carried away off to the side of things that aren't important. In light of eternity, in light of the Lord can come in. We don't have forever in a day. The Lord says, I'm coming quickly. Be ready. And so we're to, to view this in light of eternity. Um, it isn't a mind that's swept away by sudden emotion. It isn't swept away by uncontrolled passions. But rather, those who have this kind of self-control, those who love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, for as Ephesians 4.14 says, that we may no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by the waves or is carried away by every wind of doctrine or by the cunning craftiness of man and deceitful schemes, but rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Peter is not done with just that. Look again at verse 7. He says, therefore be self-controlled. And then he also adds sober-minded. It's the word nekpho uh, in the Greek. It means to be sober, yes. But it speaks to being um, vigilant, or you could say to be on the alert. To be on the alert. That's how it's translated in Matthew 24, 14, when Jesus said, therefore be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Or in Matthew 26, 41, Jesus said to Peter, Keep watching and praying 
that you may not into enter into temptation. Remember that? Keep alert. Keep watching. Be on the alert. Now, these two verbs are kind of like synonymous and are really best understood together in this, in this sentence here. Um, you might combine these two terms by putting it this way. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, good, clear, biblical thinking leads to spiritual watchfulness. It leads to the ability to view things with an eternal perspective, with a godly perspective, a divinely perspective, and to establish right responses. And beloved, this is indispensable for the last days. This is indispensable to one very essential element of Christian living, and that is noted also at the end of verse 7. Notice the climax of this thought. Self-control and sober mind is for the purpose of your what? Prayers. Prayers. Why? Why, you ask? Because holiness flows out of direct communion with a holy God. And when that communion is hindered by a life that is out of control, a mind that is tossed to and fro, that which is most significant in the Christian relationship is lost. You're disconnected from the source. A mind that is drunk on worldly lusts and pursuits. A mind that has been deceived by Satanist devices. A mind that is indifferent to God's purposes. Is a mind that cannot know the fullness of holy communion and prayer with God. It's impossible. After all, you bring your mind to that communion, don't you? So you better not have a mind that's to and fro that's living outside God's wills and purposes and what he has called you to. And if you are to pray effectively and you're to commune with God deeply, then you must think biblically and spiritually as well. And yet for so many professing Christians today, they are dazzled by all the world has to offer them. And as a result, their communion with God is completely warped, if not lost altogether. And with it, the power of prayer and a powerful life. Peter's greatly concerned about this matter of prayer. Um, not just here. You'll remember he mentioned the same thing back in chapter 3, verse 7. When he's like, you better get your marriage together. Right? Live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in this grace of life, in this, in this marriage, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, so to Peter, this communing with God is of central importance. Something tells me Peter learned a lesson or two from the Lord as a man who experienced a less than acceptable prayer life. As he uh, tended to trade sleep for prayer, if you remember. But here and elsewhere, Peter makes it a point to say prayer is the heartbeat and power in our life. That in, in, in the fact that it is in fact that the last days these final hours, you're going to want to be a person that depends on God in prayer, that seeks your God in prayer. The end is near. And I'm <coughs> not talking about formal prayers uh, um, before our eating or, or before bed. <coughs> I mean that um, unending living communion with God, which is born out of hallowing, hallowed be your name, Praising him and thanksgiving for who he is and what he has done. 
listen, we all know that prayer is the access to, to all of our spiritual resources. But we cannot pray properly if our minds are unstable due to worldly pursuits, ignorance of the divine truth, or indifference to his divine purposes. Like, I got my own plans, God. I'll seek, I'll seek you in the things that, that I'm going to tell you about what, what need to happen for me. What's God want? What's God's plans? In fact, I'll say personally for me, when I'm involved in the study of God's word, and my mind is plunging to the, the deepest of depths, just trying to, to saturate in the breadth of these immense truths, it is then in those times of study that there flows a spiritual um, communion that ministers to me far beyond an audible word, but rather God, through his, his spirit, ministers to me. And he brings me into a time of communion and a, a, a sense of his overwhelming presence. And those are the prayers that instead of me speaking, I'm listening. I'm worshiping. I see him on the throne, and I'm humbled, and I see him working in even the smallest of things, but moving the largest of mountains. The times of, of greatest communion with God for me are the times when I'm thinking most deeply of the thoughts of God, not my own thoughts. And the more I have the mind of Christ, the sweeter the communion is the more frequently I'm in his fellowship. So Peter says, how are you to live in light of the last day? He sums it up as simple as this. Think like God thinks. Think the way God thinks. What does that mean? That means every day you're in his word. Every day you're meditating, absorbing it, chewing on it, contemplating it, drawing out the principles for godly living you're learning to think biblically about everything. And it should ultimately come to pass that we are so deeply filled with his word that our involuntary responses are godly because we're so conditioned by what he said. And then comes the sweetest of communion as the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So that's the, that's the vertical link, personal holiness with God. Now we come to the horizontal link in our mutual love for one another. In light of the end drawing near, we should love one another all the more. Notice there in verse 8. Peter says, above all. So <laughs> whatever comes next is of the utmost importance following our communion with God. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So here, as I said, Peter turns from the vertical aspect of living a, a holy life before God to now the, the horizontal aspect of, of loving one another before men. And so here, Peter's primarily concerned about the relationship between uh, other Christians. And you say, you know, well, isn't he concerned with evangelism? Yes, but you remember the words of Jesus in John 13, 
34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. For by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. And so it is the substance of our witness, our love for one another. So here Peter returns to this matter of our love for one another. And uh, notice the importance of it in verse 8. He begins by saying, above all, which refers to the supremacy of this virtue in, in the Christian's life. After you have strengthened your relationship with the Lord through deep communion with him and through the study of his word, um, as to think with a biblical mind and, and a spiritual attitude, and after you've grown in this intimate communion with prayer with God that readies you, readies you for any crisis, then, above anything else, keep loving one another earnestly. Peter does not merely exhort believers to love one another in light of the end. No, he says such love is above all. I love that, above all. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Paul's word in Colossians 3.14 where he said, And above all these I put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2, Make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now the word uh, earnestly or, or fervent um, is the word ectinus. It means to be um, stretched or strained, right? Um, it's used of a runner who, who's running at, at just like, maximum output and he's stretching his muscles and reaching and in fact as he's coming to that finish line reaching to to cross over the race and it means intense strenuous reaching to the to the limit of your capacity this is agape love it isn't self-seeking it puts others before himself and makes sacrifices because it is a love that you've been so graciously loved with by your Lord. And by the way, this isn't the first time Peter uh, uses this. Remember back in chapter 1, in verse 22, when he said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. But why, Peter? Since you have been born again. <laughs> because you've been born again. You've been forgiven. So that's if Peter is saying, now that you've been born again, the, the obvious reaction is to love one another with that same love that Christ has loved you with. And um, to love one another, not um, complacently, not uh, marginally, not um, minimally, um, but earnestly, stretched, strained out intently. This is a fundamental Christian truth. This love is an intentional love. It's an intense love. It's a love that is sacrificial. It's not sentimental. And requires the stretching of believers every spiritual muscle to love sacrificially, which is counter to what our flesh wants to do. It really is. And he asks, but how do I stretch? How do I strain with that kind of love? 
just listening to just some of these teachings, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said that you've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the upside down world that our Lord calls us to. I mean, this is totally opposite to, to even a born-again believer. We look at that and go, yeah, right. But that is to say that we are at least called to love even the unlovely, the unlovable, oh, as I was when God loved me. Loving those who maybe haven't treated you kindly in the past. Loving those when it doesn't seem rational, it doesn't seem reasonable. Loving to the point of sacrifice. Loving that it might cost you something. Maybe it costs you a lot. It's the kind of love that requires you to keep loving one another. Suggesting it very well may be difficult. <laughs> you got to keep doing it. And it really will require all your spiritual muscle as it keeps stretching you to love the unlovable and the ungracious. That's earnestly loving each other. It's the kind of love that's wonderfully defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a text um, you all know well. But let me remind you. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love. It profits me nothing. Here's the definition of what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag. And is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And why should we love each other with um, this kind of love? Notice in uh, verse 8, since love covers a multitude of sins. And um, I'll tell you, beloved, if as a church family, we get to the place where all we're doing is running around poking at one another instead of loving one another, we're finished. Close the doors. Everyone go home. And as long as we're in these fallen bodies, we're going to sin still. We're still going to fall short. And it's only a matter of time before someone's feelings gets hurt and we let someone down. You hang around me long enough, you're going to be pretty disappointed. 
I'm imperfect, just like all of you. I'm a sinner, only saved by the grace of God. And the only thing that is going to cover a multitude of sins and keep our family together is a love that, above all, keeps on loving one another. That's what this kind of love does. To put it simply, love forgives, and it forgives, and it forgives, and then it forgives again. And if we don't have that in this church, beloved, we're in real trouble. And I can't help but looking back at Peter's life once again, as he was thinking to himself that he had surely arrived to the point of, of his um, highest spiritual maturity, having, of course, walked so closely for all those years with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? <laughs> and no doubt, Peter was sort of patting himself on the back, probably at his chest, out for all the generosity he's shown since the Jewish Talmud had said only three times was required. And so think how far he had come. Peter was willing to double it plus one. <laughs> but the Lord said to Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, Peter, but up to 70 times seven. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And beloved, we're sinners. And as we go through this life, we have got to have something to cover that, don't we? And by the way, that statement from Peter, he borrowed from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And the present tense here, I think, indicates that which is constantly true. It's, it's self-evident truth. Love is always, by very nature, covering a multitude of sins. Love forgives, and then it keeps on forgiving it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love covers all sins. And the greatest model of that is God. Why did God show mercy? Why did God forgive our sins? Ephesians 2 says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, theologians through the years have battled with that statement in 1 Peter 4, 8, since love covers a multitude of sins. And some have said it's referring to God. It's, it's God's love that's covering our sin. And others have said, no, it's the whole verse is referring to us. It's about our love for one another. And I believe the answer is actually quite simple. It's an uh, axiom. It's, it's um, self-evident. Self-evident truth. It refers to true agape love. Whether from God to man to, to Christian to Christian. Now, our love for each other does not atone for sins. Only Christ's redemptive death does, does that. But with the grace with which God so loved us, we are to love one another enough to pass that grace on in the way that we love one another and forgive one another should demonstrate the way that Christ has so loved us. So yes, love covers a multitude of sins. It's the very nature um, of love. The only way we could be saved is because God so loved the world. And only love could cover our sins. As Paul said to the Romans, Christ died for us. Why? Because God showed his love 
so it's only as we keep loving one another earnestly that we can cover a multitude of sins. And beloved, this is the heart of the church. These aren't um, comp uh, complex solutions. Um, these are simple ones. Not so simple to live out, unfortunately. But simply stated, but as obedient followers of Christ in daily communion with him, God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, will cause his people to first love God and then to have love for his neighbor. Peter goes one step further in this matter of love. In verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And actually, the word hospitality here actually means to love strangers, interestingly. And I think here, because we tend to be lovers of our own little groups, um, and we'll tend to um, cover their sins. And Peter says, would you please extend that to a, a stranger once in a while as well? And more than just loving earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, he also has in mind the opening of one's heart. And, and if available, the opening of one's home to, to those in need. For love, you see, is um, intensely practical. And you guys do such a just credible job of this, I have to say, because I get to witness all the ways that you guys love one another. And there have been some demonstrations of love, whether it be through meals or helping someone get through um, a hard time with their, their rent or a difficult situation. Time and time again, you guys have loved one another, and you have loved those outside of this building as well. And um, God has used it amazingly. I've heard so many great testimonies and seeing all the ways that said, yeah, that all started because of that simple bit of companionship and love and just not being a cold Christian and, and, sh and shoo you depraved <laughs> sinner, get out of here. Um, I've really seen this do, God do amazing things with this. And I think this is talking about here, if you've studied the New Testament background, you would know that traveling Christians and um, specifically ministers and pastors, the, the apostles of the first century, they weren't staying in the, lo the local inn. There, there needed to be this hospitality that existed. In fact, early Christians, um, probably the gospel would have been incredibly slowed down, but God allowed all these things to fall in place where the gospel went forward and there were all these places where Paul and these other people could go and preach the gospel and have a place to stay and they had people who came along beside them, loved them, cared for them, gave them a meal, showed them hospitality um, and, and this was the birth of the early church and, and why the church exploded um, so quickly that God just aligned all these places to stay and connections, brother loving brother and people just helping out with the, with the basics I love what Hebrews 13 says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. Have you ever had one of those before where someone's left and you went, <laughs> I have no idea who that was, but how do they know all this stuff? It's actually reminiscent. It goes back to, I think, to Genesis here when, when God um, and a couple of angels came and visited Abram and, and Sarai. Or maybe Abraham and Sarah by, by then. 
And hospitality was also commanded in Exodus 22, 21, Deuteronomy 14, 28. Certainly Jesus emphasized it in Matthew 10, give a cup of cold water to the least of these. Luke chapter 14, 12 through 14, you have the call of, uh, to go out into the highways, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And God certainly honors those kinds of sacrifices, but the whole spirit of this is bigger than just providing a meal or, or opening a door. It's embracing the fact that we are to love people outside of our normal circle and to do it without grumbling or murmuring. You know what the biblical definition of the murmur is? It's when, you know, that person walks away and you go, oh, I never liked you anyways. You mumble it underneath. <laughs> that's, that's what the murmuring. Yeah, I didn't really love What'd you say? Say it up loud. That's the murmuring. Do it joyfully. And uh, there is to be this, this generous hospitality towards those, even those who are strangers that we don't know, and an opening of our hearts to them as we share the reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. Chapter 3 of 1 Peter. That was the call. Share the hope that is in you. So how then should we live in light of the end of all things drawing near? What's the Christian's duty in, in these last days? It is to pursue holiness with God or to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We are to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And that means we have an open heart to open a home even to strangers as you never know who God is going to put in front of you as a time such as this. We're in the last days. We're in the last days. And then the final area of duty, you'll have to come back for next week. We're going to see how God has called us to spiritual service as we serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So if you are in need of prayers this morning, um, or if you need any kind of spiritual counsel in any way, and you're dealing with something, more than happy to come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Um, be happy to answer any questions or stay with you after service as well. Um, but at this time, I invite you to please stand as we praise our living hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. God bless.